You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, this morning we continue our Advent service and Advent season, and we are in our third sermon on the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. We are going to get out early. And all Chiefs fans said, no, I'm just kidding. Don't say amen. But, but somebody was asking me this morning, Pastor, are we supposed to get used to this? You're letting people out early? And I said, no, listen, it's one verse. And you guys know me. I like to preach through sections of the Bible. Third time through the same verse, I'm, I'm running out of things to say. So, but hopefully you're going to get something valuable today because this morning we are going to be focusing on the topic of joy. You know, joy reminds me of a Christmas story that is told. There was a a man who was expecting a large Christmas bonus. And in his expectation of that, he was going to provide for his family an in-ground pool, but he didn't have enough money in his checking account for that. So he was expecting the bonus and basically wrote the check on money that he anticipated getting. So as the days and the weeks progressed, there was an increasing stress level for him because there was no mention of the bonus. Well, Christmas Eve arrived and there was no bonus. The family gathered together and there was a knock at the door. And the corporate courier was at the door and handed this man an envelope. And the man, oh, you could see the relief. He, he came back to his family and there was joy all over his face. And, and he shared with his family what he had done and, and what he was going to do. And everybody was rejoicing. And he opened the envelope. And joy turned to shock. Shock turned to horror. And as he read the contents of the envelope, He told his family this, I have been given a membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. And the family really didn't know what to do with that, but his cousin decided to restore joy and said, oh, that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. Well, of course, that did not restore joy to the man because his hope and his joy was grounded in the expectation of favorable circumstances defined by him. And friends, I think that the topic of joy for many of us is a moving target. I think that there are days throughout the year when we can easily access joy, but then there are other times when joy is an impossibility, maybe for some of you today. But what I want to do by by focusing on this third name that Isaiah 9, 6 provides for us is to remind us that in Christ, we have the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. And that gift is a ready supply of true joy. Look at the big idea in your notes. The child promised to Israel is the never-ending supply of true joy, no matter what we experience. That is the big idea. That actually is the thesis statement. It it is the point that I'm going to attempt to prove from the pages of Scripture. And to do so, once again, we will have an outline that has a long sentence, four clauses in that sentence that when you string them together and understand them biblically, you can apply to your life to find hope no matter what the past the present, or the future may hold. 
It begins in the book of Luke, chapter 2. Would you turn there? And if you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you and find Luke 2 on page 857. Luke 2 is where we find the beginning of our long sentence, and that beginning is this, when we consider the promise of joy. There is a promise of joy that the Bible gives us. That promise of joy is offered to all people. And we find that promise in Luke chapter 2. It says, beginning in verse 8, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you the good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see in the message of the angel that there is a promise of great joy. Now, in order for us to be able to understand that, we actually have to dig into the context. You can see the details right here, but let's bridge ourselves back to the ancient Near East. It says that there were shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And there's debate as to where the role of a shepherd fit into the culture of ancient Israel. There are some who say it was at the bottom rung of the social class. Others would say it was respected, but we can know for sure just simply by the details that are given here that shepherds were men of the field, that shepherds were men who worked overtime, that shepherds were working with animals who were not the sharpest knife in the drawer. It was a tough job. It was a long job. And so you can imagine these men were rugged men, They were going about their routine. It says they were watching the sheep at night, and in their routine, something disrupted it. And that something is something that hadn't happened in Israel for several hundred years. You can write down Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel saw in a vision the glory of the Lord leaving the Ark of the Covenant, leaving the temple, leaving Jerusalem, not to appear again until this very moment. It says that there was an angel that appeared to these rugged men, these shepherds doing their job, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. So these sailors, as it were, these construction workers, these men of the field were filled with great fear. That's significant. But the angel says, do not fear. And here's the resource I'm going to give you. That in this disruption of your rhythm, in this unexpected reality, in this experience that moves even these rugged men to great fear, here is the tool that you need, and it is great joy. What a promise. You know, the word joy, as Scripture uses it, is different than how we use it. Ben already alluded to this. Which, by the way, before they put the quote up on the screen, I would just remind you that when we study Scripture, English dictionaries have some value, but it's limited. If you're studying the Bible and you see a word like joy and you go to Webster's or Collier's or Apple or whatever it is that you find your definitions, you will get some benefit from that, but it will be limited. It's important for us to understand how the Bible uses terms. And so the quote that I'm about to give you is one from a great Bible dictionary. It's the Lexham Bible Dictionary. 
And the quote is this, joy is closely related to gladness and happiness, and most English dictionaries would agree. But here's where it moves beyond that and how the Bible uses it. Joy is more a state of being than an emotion. So when we see joy to the world, when we see joy in Christmas decorations, and we understand how the Bible uses that, the Bible moves joy beyond gladness and happiness to a state of being. And it actually reveals that joy is a choice. What a concept. The text doesn't tell us exactly how the shepherds processed all of this. But it's interesting because as you look at the Gospels, when men and women are presented with the promise of Christ himself, they usually don't express joy. When the men and women saw Jesus himself It didn't always have a settled disposition of a choice of joy because men and women, when they see Christ, often have expectations of favorable circumstances defined by them. Which reminds me of my childhood. I grew up in Los Angeles the first few years of my life. And so I was drawn to a couple of TV shows that were anchored in Los Angeles. One of them was the California Highway Patrol, Chips. In fact, I still watch that from time to time. But the second one was a show called Emergency. And those of you who are nodding your head are old. I can remember it as well, and so am I. And it was this show that had two groups. There was the the fire and rescue group, and then there was the hospital medical staff. And I was drawn to the fire and rescue. And and one, one, two men in particular that drove a rescue squad. And so as a three or four-year-old, I wanted this that's in a picture. Why are you laughing? That looks amazing. And by the way, those are not dolls. Those are manly statues. But this was my heart's desire. In fact, so passionate was I for this expectation of favorable circumstance that I went and told the big man. I sat on his lap. I put up with his beard. I put up with the line, and I let him know this is what I want. And so on Christmas morning, I couldn't sleep. I ran into the living room, went to the fireplace, and this is what I got. It's not the same thing. In fact, it couldn't be further from the same thing. Yes, it is red. Yes, it resembles a rescue squad, but it was not my heart's desire. Now, what's amazing is even back then we had home videos, and you can watch them. Actually, you can't because it would indict me. But my whole disposition went from joy to shock to horror because my expectations were not met. And this is what I want you to understand. My expectations were rooted in the expectation of favorable experience defined by me. I want you to understand this is the root of where we derail with our joy. When we look at our life and we have an experience where we are not joyful, it is usually because our expectations are rooted in favorable circumstances defined by us. 
And what this experience of the shepherds provides is a reminder that the promise of joy is rooted in expectations by him, not us. And if this is our starting point, then we are in a right and favorable position so that no matter what experience we have, we can actually access joy. The shepherds were reminded by the angels that there is a promise of great joy, but it is rooted in an expectation defined by God. Which moves us to number two. When we consider the promise of great joy, but experience pain and suffering. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter five. And if you have one of those Bibles from the seats in front of you, you can find Isaiah chapter five on page 569. So when we consider the promise of great joy, but experience pain and suffering, and the readers of the book of Isaiah were about to experience pain and suffering. Now, in order for us to be able to understand the significance of the pain and suffering they were about to experience, we need to understand what the illustration of the vineyard communicates. The illustration of the vineyard is about Israel. And for those of us that are not in an agricultural state of mind, vineyards take a lot of planning. They take a lot of care. They take a lot of strategy and intentionality, and we we see that in the text. God had done that with Israel. Look at verse 2. It says that God planted them. Verse 2 also says he did so very carefully and intentionally because verse 1 says he loved them. And when you think about the history of Israel, it is an amazing history that actually points us to the love and the character of God, doesn't it? And God took an insignificant family that was barren, took them out of their homeland, took them to the land that he promised them, and they dwelt there as strangers, And then as they continued, they had to go down to Egypt because of a famine. They came back, and he had to buy land from the land that God had given him. And then you have Isaac and Jacob. And then with Jacob, the the family went down to Egypt and stayed there for 400 years as slaves for many of that. And then somehow, against the greatest army in the world, this group of slaves was able to get their freedom And the history goes on and on and on how God planted them in the promised land and gave them all of the resources that they needed to thrive spiritually. But then there's a twist in this story. Verse 5 says that the vine dresser actually is going to remove protection. What? Wait, wait, wait. How does a vine dresser who is responsible for the care of the vines, who took all of the intentional strategic planning to get the vine to where it needed to be, get to a place in verse 5 where he says, I'm actually going to remove protection. Verse 6, I'm not even going to prune and care for the vine. Verse 6, I'm going to divinely prohibit essential rain. And then when we bridge out of the illustration, look at verse 13. He says, I'm actually going to send my people into exile. Then in verses 26 through 30, he says, I'm going to send for the nations and I'm going to bring them to bring pain on my people and suffering and darkness. And yet, in the midst of all of that, 
He's going to say in chapter 9, you're going to have a time of joy and rejoicing. How does this happen? Well, it happens when we understand the foundation of joy. You know, I know many of you have experienced pain and suffering. Some of you are actually going through it right now. So please hear me. I I acknowledge that. And so as I'm giving you this silly illustration of my childhood with Christmas, I'm not trying to compare my three-year-old experience with the rescue squad with yours. But even as a three-year-old, I was experiencing similar principles that we all experience when we have pain and suffering, and that is unmet expectations. You know, if you watch that video, and I would encourage you not to, (laughs) the fact is, is the rest of that morning was filled with lots and lots of gifts. Nice gifts, many gifts, and yet my joy had derailed. But, But here's what I want you to understand. It had derailed because of choices leading up to that. In fact, here's a quote. Choices were run through a filter that prioritized self. For the first three years of my life, I had not surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so by my very nature, I was choosing self, self, self. And it was unchecked, unbridled. And that's why at this very moment, I derailed my joy. Not because of the moment, not because of the unmet expectations, but because of the pattern of my heart. Here's another quote. The moment of pain and suffering does not derail joy. It is the patterns of the heart that led up to it. If you're in a position right now where you cannot find joy, it is not because of your circumstances. If you are in a position right now where joy has been lost, it is not because of an event. If you are in a position right now where your joy is derailed, it is because of the patterns of your heart that have led up to it. And I'll show you that from the illustration of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 2, it says, The vine dresser dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He had given them everything that they needed. But as time and truth went hand in hand, he looked for it to yield grapes. But at the end of verse 2, it says it yielded wild grapes. What's the contrast? Healthy grapes would have been evidence of worshipful obedience. Wild grapes were evidence of rebellion of the heart. And it wasn't just that. Verse 20 says, you call evil good and good evil. That is our nation today. That is our world today. And at the root of it is self. Why do we call good evil and evil good? Because we want to do what we want to do. We are living in the day of judges all over again. People are doing what's right in their own eyes because there is no king, and that king must be Jesus. These are patterns that we're playing out in Israel, and when we lose our true joy, it just gives evidence that we ourselves have been living these patterns. Now, is every experience of pain and suffering in our lives the result of our sin? No. 
Is every pain and suffering in our lives the result of the sin of others? Not necessarily. But every pain and suffering we experience in our lives still provides the opportunity for joy. But the sentence must continue. So when we are confronted and presented with the great promise of joy, but experience great pain and suffering, number three, we need to anchor in the bedrock of joy. So this is a whole progression. This is a long sentence. It does not just stay in the promise of joy. It just does not acknowledge that there are times of pain and suffering. It gets us to a place where we must anchor in the bedrock of joy. And where's the bedrock? It's revealed in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it and then explain to you what it is. This is one of the greatest visions in all of Scripture. Now, whether it's the exact same scene that John saw that he describes in Revelation 1, we don't know, but certainly there are similarities. And Isaiah, as a human being, does the best that he can to somehow describe this eternal and infinite vision in human terms. He says in Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Look at the contrast here. You have this incredible divine being. Above him stood a seraphim that had six wings. And look, look how the seraphim is responding to the Lord Almighty. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Friends, the bedrock of true joy is character. Would you write that down? The bedrock of true joy is character, but it's not our character. You know what's interesting as I return to my Christmas tragedy is that if as a three-year-old I would have had my joy anchored in the character of my parents, then that gift would not have derailed my joy. If I would have been able to acknowledge that the gift that I was given went through their hands. If I would have been able to acknowledge that they know what is best for me and that everything that they do in my life, even in their imperfection, is for my good. Then even when my circumstances didn't live up to my expectation, I still would have had access to joy. What we see in Isaiah 6 is the character of God on display. And friends, here's what I would submit to you. When we are confronted with the character of God, there are only two options. We either anchor in him or we run away. When we are confronted with the character of God, we either anchor in him or we run away. And those two contrasts are actually seen here in Isaiah 6. Look at the response of Israel in verse 9. It says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Do you see it there in the text? It says, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. They are actually hearing about the character of God by the prophets, by Torah. They are actually seeing the character of God through the vision of Isaiah, through the scriptures, 
They are seeing it, but they refuse to perceive. They refuse to understand. And the reason for that is their hearts. When we begin with a heart of selfishness, when we begin with a heart of pride, when we are confronted by the character of God, we run away. But then there's a contrast. Look at Isaiah. He saw the character of God in verse 5. He says, woe, me. woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and he embraces that reality. He embraces the character of God. He calls himself what he actually is. He responds in humility And beloved, the secret to true joy is being anchored in the bedrock of God's character. You see, when we consider the promise of great joy but experience pain and suffering, we need to anchor in the bedrock of joy. And now we can look at the third name that is given to Jesus in verse 6. We come to the end of our sentence, and it ends like this. Who is our everlasting Father? who is our everlasting Father. The fact is, is that we are presented with a historical context here that might be difficult for us in the 21st century to understand. We we live in a day and in a country where princes and kings and royalty are a foreign concept, literally speaking. But in the ancient world, there would have been five throne names that would have been given to a son who was born prince. And these throne names were used to describe the power that that king desired that prince to have or to serve as a prophecy of what that prince's reign would look like. That's important for us because maybe you read this and wonder, how does the son of God get described as father? The point isn't that the Son, and that the Christ that is referred to in Isaiah 9 6 is actually the Father. The point is, this is his throne name. And because it is his throne name, it describes his character and his reign. The term Father was used in the ancient world by kings because he would refer to himself as the provider and protector of his people. And so when this says that the son who is going to be born, that the child who is going to be given is going to be called father, it's because he will serve as provider and protector of his people. But then John Calvin writes in his commentary on this passage that the Hebrew term also refers to author. And what I love about that is you can write down Hebrews 12, verse 2, where the author says, we look to Jesus, the author and completer of our faith. And what's awesome about that is that is the purpose of these four names. Remember, we've been talking over the last couple weeks of the fact that the the zeal, the passion of the Lord, verse 7, is to do this. Do what? Bring salvation to a people that is impossible for them. It is impossible for us to gain victory over our sin. It is impossible for us to gain victory over Satan. This is an impossible victory that the zeal of the Lord is passionate to do for us. 
should elicit within us an excitement. And it is this father, this provider, this perfecter, this author, this protector that is our hope of salvation. You know, there is a postscript to my Christmas tragedy. Years later, my parents gave me a big rescue vehicle. And even though I had more years under my belt, I decided to see whether or not this rescue vehicle had airbags. And so on our second story deck, I decided to push my rescue vehicle off the deck, and it did not have airbags. In fact, it shattered, and it was ruined. And that little postscript reminds us of the fact that parents actually know us. They know us better than we know ourselves. And in that moment of unmet expectations, we have a temptation to turn on our parents and say, they don't care about me. They don't know me. They don't want what is best for me. I know what is best. But in a spiritual sense, we need to remind ourselves that we have a perfect father. And our parents are limited, aren't they? I can just speak for myself. In our parenting, we are limited. We're about to send our oldest daughter off to college, and we have, we have not done perfectly for her. We've done our best. We tried to anchor our parenting in the gospel, but I just look back on 18 years, and I think, oh, if she doesn't have to spend millions of dollars on therapy, praise God. <laughs> but in that reality and the limitations that we have as parents, we have a perfect provider, protector in Christ. But that's not the only part of his name, is it? Look at the text. He's not just father. He's everlasting father. You see, every king, no matter how powerful, no matter how perfect of a perfecter or provider and protector and author, they've had a beginning and they've had an end, haven't they? No matter how great a parent is, they have a beginning and they have an end. But in this name, we are reminded that our Father, Jesus Christ, is everlasting. He is eternal. And because of that, beloved, we have the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? The promise of great joy is offered to us but not through the promise of comfort, not through the promise of health, wealth, or prosperity, through the promise of the character of God expressed in Jesus Christ and the salvation that that offers. Friend, I want to ask you, are you here this morning as an individual who has received that gift? You see, receiving that gift costs you everything. It costs you the definitions and expectations that you have been used to placing on your life. It costs you your throne. It requires that you acknowledge that God is holy and that you are a sinner rightfully and justly condemned to hell. It requires that you acknowledge and own that you cannot do anything about it on your own. It requires that by faith you trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ and ask God to forgive your sins. 
It requires that you then surrender and submit yourself to King Jesus. And by doing that, Romans 10, 9 says, you will be saved. Have you done that? If you haven't, now is the time of your salvation. Today is the day you can turn to him and surrender and receive the gift. And friend, if you do that right now, we have members of our prayer team that are at the end of the stage. And after the service, please go and talk to them because they can help you. Now begin your journey of growing day after day. Better being able to access the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Friend, if you have surrendered to him and you've been transformed by his completed work, Where's your joy? Is it grounded in circumstances? Has it been derailed by unmet expectations defined by you? Oh, what I've been sharing with you today is not something you can just flip a switch. It's not something you can get to a place in your life where you finally arrived and it will be easy from here on out. But today is an opportunity for you to move the needle. It's an opportunity for you to put another block of the foundation of your understanding on which you can build your life. It's another opportunity for you to clean the lenses of your worldview so that no matter what happens in the past, present, or future, you have access to the true joy, and that is the gift that keeps on giving the whole year.